This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... He didn't say if he is or he isn't, but he made the case for why he should. That's uh, Jennifer Mercias, who teaches presidential rhetoric at Texas A&M University on President Joe Biden's State of the Union address yesterday. Details coming up. Also, followers of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church have been killed in the country's Oromoya region. The death toll from a powerful earthquake in Turkey has passed 11,000. And Nigeria has postponed Friday's deadline for trading in old banknotes for newly designed ones. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Speaking in front of a divided Congress for the first time since he took office, President Joe Biden delivered his second State of the Union address Tuesday evening, touting low unemployment numbers and the end of pandemic emergency as he pleads for bipartisanship that's even more elusive under a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. VOA's White House Bureau Chief Patsy Wida Kusuara has this report. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. During his second State of the Union speech on Tuesday, his third address to a joint session of Congress since taking office, President Joe Biden stayed with his unity agenda. Speaker, I don't want to ruin your reputation, but I look forward to working with you. (laughs) Biden touted increased American manufacturing and legislation that invests in renewable energy production, domestic semiconductor industry, and infrastructure to compete against China. We used to be number one in the world in infrastructure. We've sunk to 13th in the world. The United States of America, 13th in the world in infrastructure, modern infrastructure. But now we're coming back because we came together and passed the bipartisan infrastructure law. Addressing high inflation, Biden argued the problem is global, caused by the pandemic and the war on Ukraine, and focused instead on low unemployment. We've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs, more jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years. He highlighted steps his administration took to erase federal student loan debt, increase the number of insured Americans, implement COVID relief programs, and lower prescription drug prices. But can he convince Americans things are looking up? Republicans are determined to stop him, with Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Arkansas governor and former White House press secretary under President Donald Trump, delivering the GOP response. In the radical left's America, Washington taxes you and lights your hard-earned money on fire. But you get crushed with high gas prices, empty grocery shelves, and our children are taught to hate one another on account of their race, but not to love one another or our great country. With Republicans controlling the House of Representatives following the November election, new House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has promised renewed scrutiny on the administration, including on the classified documents found in Biden's home, the billions of dollars of aid to Ukraine, and what they say is his weak response to a Chinese surveillance balloon, which the U.S. recently shot down. Despite low unemployment and gas prices down sharply from a record high in mid-2022, Biden's approval ratings remain at 40 percent. While his speech is unlikely to change that, it does signal that he is likely to run again in 2024. 
Jennifer Marcicha teaches presidential rhetoric at Texas A&M University. He didn't say if he is or he isn't, but he made the case for why he should, right? Which is that he can see what needs to be done. He's had all of these successes so far. He's had all of this achievement, but there's still a lot more that he wants to get done. As a gesture of solidarity to Ukraine, First Lady Jill Biden again invited the country's ambassador, Oksana Markarova. And parents of Tyree Nichols, the black man who was beaten by Tennessee police officers and died days later. When police officers or police departments violate the public trust, they must be held accountable. Following recent shootings in California, Biden again called on Congress to ban assault-style rifles. He urged Republicans to come up with immigration reform, debt reduction proposals, and vowed to protect reproductive rights. Make no mistake about it. If Congress passes a national ban, I will veto it. And the but bipartisan legislation is unlikely under a divided government. In a few months, Biden is set to clash with Republicans who are demanding spending cuts before agreeing to pass a debt ceiling hike to prevent the country from defaulting. Patsy Wiedankuswara, VOA News, Washington. The U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit was just two months ago, so many thought President Joe Biden would use his State of the Union address to follow up on the commitments made then. He might support the growth and protection of democracy on the continent and call for African nations to join the U.S. in suppressing insurgents and Islamic extremists. William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the American University in Washington, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed El-Shanawi why the president did not touch on that aspect in his address. This is because the way this administration has approached foreign policy from the beginning. But let me first say that part two of the Democracy Summit is happening within the next two months. And it is a high foreign policy party for the administration, even though it wasn't in the speech. But there was a reconfiguration of U.S. foreign policy to make a foreign policy that made sense to the American working class and middle class and prioritized their issues. This administration has clearly decided not to talk about foreign policy that much to U.S. domestic audiences. The only two foreign policy he spent any time on were Ukraine and China, and that was sort of a signaling to the world of what the U.S. cares about in foreign policy with a focus on democracy, you know, as a general theme. And he had this statement, which I didn't quite agree with during the speech, that democracies were up and autocracies down when the NGOs are telling us there is some democratic backsliding going on. So that wasn't directly correct. But he didn't want to get into things like terrorism and insurgencies and extremism, because that's just not a priority anymore for Americans. Including this type of thing in a foreign policy speech will happen. But the speech was only about 5% foreign policy because that's what Americans care about. This is Joe Biden, working class guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, representative of working class Americans, letting them know that their domestic material well-being matters. And that's why at the opening of the speech, he did talk about the global food crisis, inflation and the price of energy, because that's what the average American talks about. He wasn't talking to the world. He was talking to he, Americans he wants to vote for him in two years. President Biden reiterated his campaign pledge and said, our nation is working for more freedom, more dignity, and more peace, not just in Europe, but everywhere. Would that mean a doctrine for what is left of his presidency in all parts of the world, especially with a spate of military coups in Africa? 
That remains to be seen. This administration has made clear statements of principle and has followed through on those principles in some and not in many others. This raises the question of Palestine. This raises the question of Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the Uyghurs vis-a-vis China. It applies to Western Sahara. It applies to forgotten wars like the Congo and frozen conflicts like Libya or Somalia in its own way and, and elsewhere. And the coups you mentioned. You know, populations across the world who live in relatively democratic free societies is about a that leaves about 90 countries that don't. And the statement of principles implies a principled foreign policy. So the question is, what will we do about the conflict zones and those 90 countries that are unfree? Hopefully the U.S. will do more. I'm not holding my breath. But one thing the U.S. can do is lead on the systems like human rights reporting, which the U.S. has led the world in, reporting on trafficking, reporting on corruption and terrorist financing. So even when the U.S. isn't necessarily intervening to help this country or population or that country or population, it can sort of lead the world in setting standards. But to directly answer your question, the U.S. will pay lip service on some issues, make small efforts on others, medium efforts on others, and big efforts on others. And let me just say that the U.S. generally is the world's security leader damned if they do and damned if they don't. When the U.S. intervenes, they're being post-imperialistic and meddling. And when they don't intervene, they don't care about these populations and, and they don't have principles. And so the U.S. has to make strategic choices that works for itself, not just for its principles. People are threatened by terrorism. People are threatened by state terrorism. People are threatened by autocracy, by corruption. But what the U.S. can do is do what it can, where it can, when it can, with the resources it's had, has, and then help build this global institutional order and deal with systems level change at the global order. And in the end, hopefully the U.S. is just more a force for good than for bad and for making things better and not worse. And if I could just conclude, the U.S. spends billions of dollars educating and empowering populations around the world. And perhaps that empowerment helps the next generation a lot, too. And that's a big part of this question as well. That was William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the American University in Washington. He was speaking with VOA's Mohammed El-Shanawi. Biden opened his speech with a call for bipartisan cooperation, but quickly moved on to trumpeting his economic wins and challenged the Republicans not to undo it. VOA's Carol Van Dam discussed the speech with Washington Post chief correspondent Dan Baltz, who covers national politics and the presidency. He agrees that Biden appeared focused, energetic, and even feisty on the topic of protecting Americans' social security and Medicare benefits. It was a very, uh, I think your word feisty is a good word for the the presentation last night. You know, he he did open with a call for bipartisanship, and I think that's a genuine part of uh, the president's DNA. I mean, he was more than three decades in the Senate, and I think that 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 has made him the kind of, you know, person who always is looking for ways to have bipartisan cooperation. But um, on the other hand, he really had an agenda that he wanted to push. I I, I thought the most interesting parts of the speech, obviously, were the somewhat unscripted moments, not entirely unscripted, but when he when he challenged the Republicans, particularly uh, those who have called for sunsetting Social Security or sunsetting entitlement programs. And that exchange was was quite striking because he was thinking and acting on his feet. And as uh, 
as Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution noted this morning in a piece he wrote on on their website, uh, it, it, uh, he may have won the war over Social Security right there in the House chamber. He put the Republicans in a box on that. And I think that the president's posture um, and combativeness was different than some people might have expected. Yeah, he was he was kind of saying, yeah, come on, I'll, I'll take you on. You know, let's let's go for this. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there was a question, I think, going in about how uh, how much he would acknowledge that people haven't felt the economic changes that have been part of the first two years of legislation. He kind of paid a glancing blow to that by acknowledging, you know, that some people feel left behind and that he gets that. Um, all in all, I think that his his presentation was as robust a defense and, and advocacy of of a kind of a populist blue collar economics um, that he's made during his presidency. Put this speech into perspective a little bit for us, Dan. Why is this speech significant to Americans and how has the form of the speech changed over time? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's no constitutional requirement for the president to come to the, the Capitol and deliver a State of the Union address. Um, all it, all the Constitution says is that the president should report on the State of the Union. And for many, many, many years, that was done in a written uh, document that was sent to the Congress. But a century or so ago, uh, presidents started to do it in person. This is an important event for this reason. It's the biggest audience that the president will have all year. Um, the next the next time he has an audience of this size likely will be next year at the State of the Union, or perhaps assuming he does run for re-election, when he accepts the nomination as the nominee of the Democratic Party. The, the reality is the half-life of State of the Union speeches is generally pretty short. Presidents get sometimes a bit of a boost in their approval ratings, but that dissipates relatively quickly. That was uh, Washington Post chief correspondent Dan Balls. He was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has appealed for more aid to help Ethiopia's war-displaced, saying they only received part of last year's needed funds. Maya Masakir reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, says only half of the required funding for Ethiopia was met last year and has appealed for the international community to step up its support. The High Commissioner says addressing the needs of the Ukrainian people affected by Russia's invasion must not mean the needs of the rest of the world are to be neglected. Last year, UNHCR's program, I'm only talking about UNHCR's program, in Ethiopia were only half funded. This is not acceptable. And I hope that this year, after the peace agreement, that there will be more attention and more support given to our programs. During his first visit to Ethiopia since the November peace deal was reached between Ethiopian Federal Forces and the TPLF, the High Commissioner visited Mekele, the capital of Tigray region, where he met with people displaced by the two-year war. I want to make a strong appeal that here, where there is an opening created by the peace process, it is absolutely important that all necessary resources are mobilized 
to sustain that peace agreement. The High Commissioner also visited the new refugee site in Alamoj in the Amhara region, which shelters 22,000 Eritreans. I think there's quite a lot of work that we need to do in that, on that particular site to make, it, uh, to make living conditions better. We had quite a good discussion with the representative of the refugees. We also have to recognize that Eritreans have gone through a very troubled uh, time. Prior to the start of the war in Ethiopia, about 20,000 Eritrean refugees were sheltered in camps in Tigray. Both camps were destroyed when they came under attack during the war. The High Commissioner also raised the importance of supporting the UN's work in Ethiopia in recognition of Ethiopia hosting the third largest number of refugees in the world with 880,000 people. A majority of those refugees are South Sudanese, followed by Somalis and Eritreans. Maya Msikr for VOA News, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Followers of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church have been killed over the last several days by security forces in the country's Oromia region. There is anxiety about the future of one of the world's oldest churches because of the breakaway group. The church has accused the government of being sympathetic to the breakaway faction. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church, as well as the breakaway group, have called for separate rallies Sunday in the capital Addis Ababa. I reached out to William Davison, senior analyst for Ethiopia for the crisis group, to brief us on the matter. The um, the, the current problems related to the Orthodox Church, they stem from a dispute uh, partly over language issues, and it has led to a breakaway element um, from within Oromia, um, who have you know, objected to the refusal to be able to deliver services in the local language and this sort of a- attempt to you know, set up a sort of a- autonomous part of the church was resisted um, by the holy synod which you know, excommunicated um, some of the clergy involved but those clergy and it seems you know, with the backing to some degree and, and i think this is disputed elements of the oromo oromia authorities um, have sort of proceeded with their efforts to establish or create more autonomy for themselves in Oromia. And it's during that process that there has been the violence um, and deaths in in Shashimeni um, allegations that that was Oromia security forces firing on worshippers. But with a lack of independent reporting, it's been hard to establish those those facts. So this breakaway element has has obviously been resisted by the church's central authorities. Uh, Many people associated with the church seem to believe that not just the government in Oromia, but also the prime minister and his federal government showing some form of sympathy or support for the breakaway faction, which is increasing the political tension around this issue. Um, And there are demonstrations uh, scheduled um, on the the 12th of February by by both of these um, parts of of the church. Uh, so let's talk about uh, uh, the Prime Minister. The Ethiopian Orthodox Church has accused the government of meddling in its internal affairs after the Prime Minister instructed his cabinet ministers to keep out of the matter, saying the church should solve the problem through its internal mechanisms. Yes, well, I, I think that um, clearly uh, this is about um, these various claims of, of legitimacy within the church. And equally, obviously, the Holy Synod has a very strong claim to legitimacy. And yes, they want the government support for their position. And our understanding is that 
you're the prime minister by refusing to explicitly intervene and show support for the Holy Synod. Um, that has angered people as it's seen as tacit support for this breakaway faction. Elements are trying to achieve more more autonomy within Oromia. So that's, you know, that seems to be at the, at, at the root of why the, the prime minister's stance has, has caused anger amongst segments of the Orthodox community. The Ethiopian government got through a civil war and came to a peace deal with uh, the, the north in Tigray. And now it's being immersed into this uh, whole thing with the church. Clearly, this is a, an example of a very worrying and, 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 and damaging um, political turmoil. And I think the question, can the um, Orthodox Church itself define you know, some consensus and an accommodation between the different positions and achieve reconciliation. The critical thing here is that this problem within the church does not worsen or infect the broader political conversation and, and worsen tension. And it is probably also another indication and that to achieve uh, the type of political stability that the country so so clearly needs, then you know, all of these conversations and all of this multitude of, of political actors and, and from throughout society um, do need to come together and start trying to address the root um, of these disagreements and, and try and chart a common path forward. That was William Davison, senior analyst for Ethiopia for the Crisis Group. He talked to me from Nairobi. VOA Africa is your trusted source for news, sports, entertainment and music. Stay engaged with VOA Africa. We love to hear your voice. You can call us 24-7 on WhatsApp and leave a message. Leave comments, requests or greetings. We may play your message on VOA Africa. Dial the international code PLUS1. Then 202-258-3076. VOA Africa is always happy to hear your voice. The number again is the international code plus one. Then 202-258-3076. Nigeria's Supreme Court has moved to prevent the government from enforcing a Friday deadline for citizens to trade old Nayara banknotes for newly designed ones. Reuters says Nigerians were due to turn on in old 1,500 notes as part of a plan to curb cash in circulation and control inflation. The International Monetary Fund supports the deadline extension, saying a shortage of the new notes was disrupting trade and payments. Some have criticized the timing of the swap ahead of the February 25th election as campaigns are funded by hard-to-trace cash. Three states are challenging the plan in court, arguing that it is causing hardship. In Egypt, a counter-terrorism court has sentenced one man to death and 11 to life in prison for joining a terrorist group linked to the Islamic State. The French news agency AFP says the court also issued three 15-year jail sentences 
three 10-year sentences and four acquittals. The state media says the defendants were found guilty of leading or joining a terrorist group between 2015 and September 7, 2019. The sentences are part of a crackdown that began 10 years ago when Army Chief and current President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi took power and cracked down on Islamic extremists. AFP notes that in January, Egyptian courts sentenced 85 people to death, with nearly half approved by the Grand Mufti. Amnesty International says Egypt carried out the third highest number of executions in the world in 2021, following China and Iran. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Barrow, and our engineer, Justin Twait, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.